I uh, hope you were able to grab a bulletin when you came in this morning. Might even be worth going and getting one. Uh, well, they're all spread around you there uh, in, in the uh, aisles around you. You're going to need it as we work through not only the passage I'm about to read for uh, for the sermon, but also there are some other passages that are printed in here that are going to be helpful for you as well. So this morning, we continue in the series that we've been doing here now uh, for more than a month. Uh, which is called, There's a Place for Us, a Biblical Theology of Place. And as you know, if you've been here, I like to bring us up to speed each time on where we've been in this series so that we can get a sense. This is deliberately structured in the order that it's been going in. I think I've been able to reduce this explanation as far as I possibly can. Sermon number one, in placement. Sermon number two, Displacement. Sermon number three, promised place. Sermon number four, a holy place. And now sermon number five today, a place of rest. I think that's the fewest words I can use to bring you up to speed on everything that we've looked at in the order that we have considered so far. So the idea here is that the promised place, this is what we saw last week, was to be a holy place because of God's presence. And it was to be a place of rest, which is what we consider today. So as I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, I'm now going to read for us uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter for us. And it is difficult. The, the, the way that it's written, when you read it out loud, it's actually hard for us to follow. To give you a little bit of help in that, here's what I want to do. I just want to tell you the kind of four places in Scripture in, in the history of God's people that the writer is using to make the argument that he's, that he's trying to make, to, to continue to urge, to hold back, to pray. So here they are. The first thing that he's using, and I'll do them in the order that they come in in Scripture, is, is, as you would expect, Genesis 2, where God rested uh, after the creation of the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. That's one thing that our author is noting. The second thing that he points to is the time of the Exodus, and then the time when uh, Joshua led the people into the promised land. So so you've got the, the exodus in Moses and the promises of a place that went along with that. But then you also see in that the rebellion of the people, the, the disobedience of the people. That, that was what we saw in chapter 3, quoting Psalm 95, the hard hearts that are described there in that particular place. And, and the result of that is that the people who came out of the the, of Egypt did not enter into the rest that had been promised to them. And in fact, the Lord says, they shall not enter my rest. But then Joshua leads some of the people into the land that was promised. So, okay, you've got creation, then you've got the Exodus and Joshua leading some of the people in. The next point, the next part of history is 400 years after that, David reflecting in Psalm 95 and using the old promises that were made to Joshua to exhort the people who have now been in the land for some time. 
John, pardon me, David uses those, and, and the emphasis becomes today. David is able to use old promises to talk about today, and the writer of Hebrews finds in that a nugget of hope. To say, if you can take a 400-year-old promise and apply it to today, if David can do that, then that means we can do that. If David can say there's a promise of entering his rest, then I, the writer of Hebrews, can tell you there's a promise of entering his rest. And then his final place that he comes to is in Christ, who has entered the true holy place, the true place of rest, and his entrance there is our hope and confidence. Okay? I'll read it shorter than I probably explained it uh, right there. But hopefully that at least gives you where the points are in, in the, the argument that he's trying to make here. Let me read for us. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since... Therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not pardon your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. I wonder. Uh, and and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that, that this promise is great and it's going to take us a little bit of wrestling to work its way through us, but it's for us today. Lord, help us. Help us as we work our way through your word. Our desire here this morning is not just to solve an intellectual puzzle, 
but it's to have our hearts stirred, our souls stirred, our striving enabled and empowered. And so we pray that you would do that work through this word today. Lord, help us even now to hear your word, not harden our hearts, but to seek after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Three words stand out immediately. Promise, enter, and rest. When we look at the passages that I've read for Promise, enter, and rest, and they are three great words. We have talked about promises already uh, for several weeks. And promises, of course, are good things, and they're especially wonderful to have when the promise comes to us from God about a place that he is preparing for us. But think, in the context that we've had so far, in addition to that, how sweet the word enter is. Enter. Have you ever been excluded from something? Something you wanted to get into? Maybe even as a child you remember it and it was painful to you. Or maybe as an adult it was a job. But maybe it's a club, it's a team, it's a school that you really wanted to get into. It's a conversation that you wanted to enter into. A group that you wanted to enter into. And yet you find yourself to be excluded even though others were in. In that context, enter becomes a really sweet word to hear. Now think about it in the context of Genesis. In Genesis, we have read that from the place where God, that God made for us, we were sent out, yea, driven out of that place, and stationed there was a cherubim with a flaming sword that swirled all around to block someone from coming back into that place. Now, when you're in that condition and you hear a promise to enter, that's really good news to hear. That's really good news if you say there's going to be a way for me to get back into a place to enter in once again. It's a word that when exiles hear it, when an, when an exile hears enter, that makes you full of hope. And it makes you full of expectation. Because I'm an outsider and I get to come in to a particular place. And then the third word, rest. Rest is a sweet word, right? I wonder if, if, if I ask you to, to draw to mind what comes to mind when you hear the word rest, I wonder what picture would be in your head right now. What do you associate with rest? I, I bet for many of us, it would probably be a place of some sort that communicates to us the idea of rest and the sweetness of rest and what rest is. Rest is a good thing. God rested after creation. And one of the things that we're going to look at here is that the rest that is being described in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is not just a rest in general, but his rest, my rest, he says in particular. Now, of course, as we think about this, and you think about what does it mean for God to rest, we, we certainly can't you know, kind of picture him on couch, couch with uh, some mosquitoes and some sulfur and some Oreos and binging something on Netflix. That's not what it means for God to rest. Instead, a, a place of rest is a much bigger and deeper term 
in Scripture. It's not just doing nothing. It, it's related to words that we're familiar with, words like peace and joy, uh, concord, where things fit together. Tranquil felicity is a way that various uh, theologians define rest. It is very closely related to the idea of shalom, to the peace, to the wellness, to the wholeness, to security and quietness, to a state of equanimity that can exist. It, it, it's, it's, sorry, this is kind of obvious. It's the opposite of restlessness. This is a world that since the fall has been characterized by enmity, by strife, and by struggle. And a place of rest is a place without that. A place of security and of peace. And you put that all together, those three words, and it sounds like the opening of chapter four. The promise of entering his rest still stands. It's still there which you think, great, that's really good news. Except that if, if we were listening carefully, when I read chapters three and four for us, we heard all of the warnings that surround that promise. In fact, the promise of rest seems to be more surrounded by failure by the inability to enter that rest than it does by people who actually entered the rest, at least from the two sections of scripture that I just read for us. We have to try and understand it. Now, as has been our pattern in this series to this point, what I want to do for us is trace the development of the promise of rest. And then we can see, okay, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Now, lest this seemed to you to be some kind of an impractical, esoteric exercise that a pastor would like to do to titillate his intellect and has nothing to do with you. I want you to struggle to realize, strive to realize that we are talking here about nothing less than arriving at and entering into the eternal place of rest. Nothing less than that is on the line here. There are two destinations. One place is the place of no rest, of torment. And the other place is the place of rest. It's no small matter that we're talking about here. And the writer of Hebrews has that tone in what he's writing to help us to see. Listen, wake up. You can't be presumptuous about this promise. Because a lot of other people have failed to reach the rest that was promised. Okay, let's begin. We begin unsurprisingly then with Genesis chapter 2. Uh, it's on the front of your bulletins if you would like to read. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he has done. When we read that, we see the rest that God himself entered into. What Psalm 95 and then Hebrews 3 and 4 following it help us to see is that 
this rest that God entered into at the end of creation was not a rest that was only for God. It was a rest for humanity into which humanity was called and invited to come into it. It's, it's his rest, but it's a rest that he's calling us to enter into as well. So we are entering into that which God entered into at the completion of creation. You'll recall the fourth commandment, right? The fourth commandment is the Sabbath rest commandment. And the fourth commandment rests our rest upon God's rest. And the, the foundation for us to have a day in seven in which we rest is the fact that that's the pattern that we see in scripture about God himself. But what is being said to us again in, in, in Hebrews 3 and 4 and Psalm 95 is that in observing the Sabbath, we are not only following a pattern. We are, but we're not only doing that. We are, in fact, entering into God's rest. Okay? We're not just resting, we're entering into the space, the place that God occupied, a place of rest. And thus, the Sabbath is a couple of things at the same time. On the one hand, it is commemorative. In the Sabbath, we remember the creation, we remember that God worked and then rested. And if you recall, the same commandment in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5 is resting upon redemption, the redemption from Egypt and, and going into the land. So it's commemorative. We remember the works of God and the rest of God. But in addition to it being commemorative, it is also the Sabbath restorative. It is restorative for us as we have one day in seven to rest from our normal labors, to gather together with God's people, to be together and to worship, it's restorative for us. We are thankful now for a day of rest, but it is also anticipatory. It's a thing that looks forward. It's, it's an appetizer, if you will. The Sabbath, this day that the Lord has given to us, is an appetizer, a sign of things to come. So, so that's where scripture starts with this, this statement in Genesis and the realization that that's for us as well. But the picture of a day of rest is enhanced then in scripture by the promise of a place of rest. So a day of rest is one thing, but you get that enhanced by a place of rest, a place that would ideally typify, show us all that is meant by rest, a place where uh, Sabbath life, where Sabbath rhythms could be practiced and enjoyed by the people of God. Now, turn with me in your bulletins to page seven. On page seven, I have included some verses to help us see how the promise of a place of rest is developed in scripture because all things are not said at the same time they're enhancements of things that have come before to help us to be able to see so let me let me work us through what we've got here to see the development that goes on 
in Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, the sin of the golden calf has taken place, and Moses has interceded at this point for the people. He's considering the land to which God is leading them, and he says to the Lord, you haven't told us who will go up to that place with us. The Lord responds, and he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And, and here, for really the first time, the seed, the, the land that is to come is linked with the promise of rest. Obviously, with the promise of presence, that's what we saw last week. But with the promise of rest in particular, the next passage that is there is Deuteronomy 12, 9. That's the passage that we had for our Old Testament reading last week, the promise of a place within that place. But we read this, verse 9. For you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving to you. And it continues in 10. I know it's not in your bulletin. But when you go over to the, you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and he gives you rest from all of the enemies who are around you. You see, the link is beginning to get closer between the land that God is giving, the inheritance of the land that you are receiving, and the rest that is going to characterize life in that land. It is a rest that is going to be given by God in light of the defeated enemy. Now, of course, uh, Deuteronomy is about 40 years after Exodus 33 is spoken. And then we come to Joshua, who is about to lead the people into the land. This verse is not in uh, your bulletins either. But in Joshua chapter 1, verse 13, we hear this. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. The, the link becomes very specific here. God's going to give you a place of rest. That's the promise that has been stated to you. And then we come to the end of Joshua. The conquest of the land has taken place. And we read this. Thus the Lord God, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. We see the anticipation at the beginning of Joshua, and here we see the fulfillment of the promises that God had made. The enemies have been defeated. You're now in a place of rest. Now we move forward in Israel's history 400 years. 400 years to Psalm 132 and at that point the psalmist is reflecting on the place where God has chosen to dwell. Back in Deuteronomy we read that there's going to be a place within a place that I'm going to choose for my dwelling place. This not in your bulletin but from Psalm 132. Uh, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And then the passage that is quoted there, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And now quoting, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So no longer is it just a generalized, 
resting place, a land that is going to be the land of rest for you. But it's gotten quite specific down to Zion, the city that God has chosen as his place. And the last one that I've got for us here then is uh, uh, the next generation uh, with Solomon in 1 Kings 8.56, uh, a passage that actually we've quoted a couple of times in this series so far. And I'm going to preach on that uh, chapter tonight. But this is the dedication of the temple. And at the dedication of the temple, we read from Solomon, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Those are words, of course, that echo Joshua. Same thing that Joshua had to say 400 years prior to that, when they'd gone into the land. But now it's specific to the temple that Solomon has constructed. There, there are a lot of other places that we can go to in Scripture to see this idea develop. But I think this is sufficient for us to see the growth of this restful promise that we have for us in scripture. The way it takes shape here is clear to us, at least if we consider the promise uh, positive. Ideally, these are all good things that I read for us right now. These all look really good. They all sound really good with respect to a prom promised place of rest. And of course, what I haven't included is what the writer of Hebrews has in his mind when he looks back on exactly the same thing that I just looked at. And what the writer of Hebrews is confronting head on, what we read together in chapters three and four, is the catastrophically awful response of our faith fathers to the awesome promises that were made. So an awful response to awesome promises. Uh, it, you need to look either in your Bibles or at your bulletin at Hebrews 3 and 4 to, to just see the nature of this awful response to a great promise. It, it has exposed this promise, a heart problem. Okay, that's what I tried to emphasize when I was reading chapter 3 for us. Chapter 8, do not, I mean, pardon me, verse 8 of chapter 3, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they always go astray in their hearts. Verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This promise of entering into rest has revealed the human heart. The word of God, right, that's where it comes later. The word of God speaks, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it pierces the intentions of the heart and it exposes us. And what it exposes is the veracity of God's assessment of humanity back in Genesis chapter 6. All the intentions of the thoughts of their heart are evil all the day long. This almost sounds like an exact quote of that. The problem of the human heart still exists and the promise of entering the rest has revealed it to be so. Promise is a heart problem that manifests itself in a sin problem. And the characteristic word that goes throughout here is rebellion or rebellious. 
rebellion or rebellious? And, and verse 13 of chapter 3, we have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or verse 6 of chapter 4, they failed to enter because of disobedience. The heart problem leads to a sin problem. Rebelliousness and disobedience. And it's as simple as this, rebelliousness. We don't want to do what people tell us to do. Now, some of you might take pride in the fact that you don't do what other people tell you to do. God calls it rebelliousness. It's rebelliousness. And that's what's going on inside of our hearts when you feel that spirit prick up inside of you. Someone's told you something, God has told you something, and you go, I'm not going to do that thing. That's what's being referred to here. And then there's a solution amazingly offered to a heart problem and to a sin problem. And the solution is the good news. There is promise even given to people who are in that condition, and yet there becomes a faith problem. Verse 19 of chapter 3, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What kept people out of the promised land? Unbelief kept them out of the promised land. Or verse 2 of chapter 4, for good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who had listened. See, see, there was a way in. Good news came to them, just like good news came to us. There was a way in. It was through faith. But even then, they did not listen when God called them to faith. And the results of this are devastating. Two results are described. One is that some people never entered the promised land at all. And their bodies, verse 17 of chapter 3, their bodies fell in the wilderness. Their bodies are scattered across the wilderness in no place. No place. That's what the wilderness is. The wilderness is no place. It's no place of rest. And others entered into the land physically, but spiritually, they continued in rebelliousness so that they never actually entered the rest. They were, they were in the confines of the place of rest, but they themselves had not entered into the rest. That's why, and again, I, I, the, the complexity of this is there. That's why he's pointing out the David example. David's taking a 400-year-old promise and applying it to the people and saying that they resisted even that. He can take it to people, in other words, who've been living in the land for 400 years. For 400 years and say, you still have to enter into the rest. And you are still failing to enter the rest. They might say, what are you talking about? We live here. We live in this place. He says, no, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You're continuing in rebellion. You're hardening your heart against the things that God has promised to you. Go through another 400 years. Later, after David, Jeremiah writes words that I hope are familiar to us, at least to this congregation, that I think summarize this whole idea. Here are the words. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. 
where the good way is. Walk in it and find rest for your soul. Promise is held out once again. And if you know that passage, you know what comes next. And they said, we will not walk in it. We will not walk in that path. The promise of rest has worked to expose our rebelliousness and has left us restless. We're, we're accustomed, perhaps, to thinking of the law of God as that which exposes our sin. And indeed, it does. But how much worse does it become when the promises of God expose our sin and our errors? That's the idea that is here. What do you do then? What do you do now? Neither the law nor the promise has served to allow the people of God to enter into that rest. What do you do? Here are these words with which we open the service today. Hear them now with all that I've just said behind them. You, we probably hear these words mostly and think that they just come out of the blue. All of the history that I've just said is behind these words, not said in a vacuum, but they're spoken into the carnage, into the restless wreckage of humanity. One stands in the place and says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who said that? Who said that? What man has a right to say that? Given the nature of our heart, who dares resurrect the ancient promise, the ancient offer of rest? And of course, the writer of Hebrews answers the question clearly. Our high priest said it. The one who went through hell and entered into heaven. Who entered the heavenly promised holy place of rest. This high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but did not succumb to the sin, did not succumb to the rebelliousness, and the restlessness that is endemic in human hearts. Jesus, the Son of God, procured rest. He defeated all of the enemies. None were left in the land of perfect and eternal rest. Sin was dealt with. Death was dealt with. Satan was dealt with. You have to defeat the enemy to secure the rest. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. And therefore, the promise still stands today because Jesus has entered into his Father's rest. Today is still today. 
The good news of rest comes to us today, just as to, that, to them, the call is the same to us as it was to them. Believe the good news or, verse 14, hold fast our confession. In his death and resurrection, in his ascension and his enthronement, Jesus has become the new and living way opened for us into the holy resting place of God. And so the call is, come and enter the promised place of rest today. R.I.P. R.I.P. Rest in peace. When someone famous dies and a news site will put up the feeds from Twitter or from Instagram, you can be sure that 90% of the people who don't know what to say to offer some kind of comfort, some kind of hope, whether they are the most godless person in the world or not, will write, all right, rest in peace. Everyone wants to rest in peace, and indeed, the way is open for it. And, and what we can glean from Hebrews here is that the rest that belongs to our souls, the rest for our souls is both now and not yet. Indeed, the final, the ultimate resting place for us is beyond the grave. It is in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the place in which we will rest in the Lord if we believe in him. But even now, a hearty appetizer is set before us. Your heart can find a resting place. Your faith can find a resting place now in Jesus. There is an equanimity of soul that can be found in the midst of a pandemic. See, when the world thinks about rest, it imagines that rest will come, that peace will come, when certain things on earth are done, when the pandemic is done, when you can stop wearing your mask, then rest will come, things will be better. When there is the same president or when there is a new president offered, then rest will come come. When there's an end to racial tension, then things will be at rest. My friends, this world of ours, if we could see it spiritually, looks like the blast zone in Beirut, Lebanon that you may have seen this week. Did you look at the pictures of it? Did you watch the blast? Spiritually speaking, that is what our world looks like, and all of the physical things come out from the explosiveness of our ongoing participation in Adam's first sin. Here's what that means. There will always be something. If it is not one thing, it will be the next thing. If it is not COVID, 
then it will be the opioid crisis. If it is not the opioid crisis, then it will be the refugee crisis. If it is not the refugee crisis, then it will be mass shootings. If it's not mass shootings, then it will be terrorism. If it's not terrorism, then it will be war. If it's not war, then it will be natural disasters and famine. It will always be something. And if you are waiting to rest until things get better in this world, you will wait in vain. You will find absolutely no rest for your soul. Christians can chase their tails with all of these things in the world, and there is no rest to be found, because they will be with us to the end. That is what your Savior said. You will always have these things with you to the end. Please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't seek the help where we can. Should. But what we're saying is this. In the wilderness of this world and in the wilderness of our souls, there is a place of rest today. Today. A person who says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Who takes the old promise and says, I've got it. All of you have failed. I've got this one. I've got this promise. And therefore, here's the message of a very complicated section of scripture. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, that's Hebrews 4.1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us strive to enter that rest. Striving is the opposite of being presumptuous. I'm just assuming everything's well. I can do what I want. God, the gracious God, he'll let me know. Strive to enter that rest. It's as simple as the call then. Come to Jesus one who is in the place of rest, to come to Jesus today, to come to Jesus again and again, to find your resting place in his rest. Lord, help us. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. And so help us to do that. And great God in heaven, help us to persevere Help us to not take these things lightly and thus fall in the wilderness or be in a place where we assume everything's okay. But we've not taken pains to strive and to hold fast the confession of our hope. Help us, help our children, help our children's children to enter in while the promise still stands. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.